if you caught the, uh, the email going out this week, you'll know that we're beginning uh, our new series, which is uh, in the book of Revelation, called Seven Letters. So we're going to be looking at uh, the first three chapters in Revelation over the summer months, and the seven letters to the churches there. And we're going we're gonna to get cracking, so open your Bibles. The, the words are not going to be on the screen, so if you could grab the Bible on your tables or on your phones and uh, open it at Revelation chapter 1. And we're going to read together as we begin. So Revelation 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write, what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call them apostles and are not, and find them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the things you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I don't know if there's any of you in this room who are Game of Thrones fans. Any Game of Thrones fans in the room? Stick your hands up. Stick your hands up. There's a smattering, at least a few. Have any of you who are fans of Game of Thrones been to the Ulster Museum to see that tapestry that they have there? Anybody? No. Never mind. I'll tell you all about it then. (laughs) Farron and I, we went to the Ulster Museum one day. There was supposed to be this dinosaur thing on in Botanic Gardens, but it was rubbish. So we went into the Ulster Museum and we stumbled across this enormous tapestry that was all to do with Game of Thrones. This thing is, it's got to be a couple of hundred feet long. I had, I'd never heard of it, never, never come across it before, but this, this thing is incredible. It is a work of art. It's based on that very, fa- is it the Bayou tapestry? Is that what it's called? That very famous tapestry of like, whatever. But uh, this thing goes on and on. We wandered around this thing absolutely in awe at these scenes of dragons, of death, of kings, of swords, of blood, of guts, of, you know, new life, of death, all this stuff going on. It's absolutely crazy and completely overwhelming. We were just, you know, overwhelmed by this thing. But um, the problem is, like, I've never even seen one episode of Game of Thrones, like most of you in this room. So, like, I was kind of going, what the heck? does this thing all mean? I had no clue. I could pick up, you know, bits and pieces as I looked at this thing. But um, I kind of think that when we first read the book of Revelation, it can come across a little bit like that. We've got this crazy vision that John saw, all these visions of insane things, and we can be overwhelmed by it when we initially see it. We may not have the interpretive tools to kind of grapple with what this thing actually is. When I, when I say the book of Revelation to you, what does it conjure up in your mind? Do you, do you think of things like the beast, 666, you know, these crazy things, the second coming of Jesus? Do you think about uh, heaven, hell, maybe? Do you think about maybe the rapture? Do you think about the Antichrist? I don't know what it is that you think about. It's worth mentioning, though, that the rapture and the Antichrist are not in the book of Revelation at all. So we're going to grapple a little bit this morning about what this book of Revelation is about, and then we're going to dive into this letter to the church in Ephesus. Growing up, um, I was one of those kids. I was raised in the church, in the Presbyterian church. 
bored senseless by church all my days in it. But I was a kid who loved fantasy stuff, fantasy novels, all this kind of thing. Lord of the Rings was my ultimate book that I love and still love to this day. And so when I found at the back of the Bible that was in you know, the front of the pew that I sat in as a kid, I was absolutely mesmerized by this book of Revelation. These crazy visions, they kept me entertained throughout those days as a kid. I had no idea what it was really about, but the vivid imagery really caught my attention and captured my imagination. I kind of forgot about the book of Revelation for many years then as I kind of wandered away from church and anything to do with faith until I came to Christ at age 26 and uh, coming out of quite a strange time of life and uh, I kind of plunged right back into the book of Revelation um, to indulge my kind of esoteric side. Read some really, really silly stuff about the book of Revelation, but some good stuff as well. Kind of had to get it out of my system at that time. But um, the book of Revelation has a tendency to do that to people. It's a crazy book, and there's been some crazy stuff written about it over the years. It's not surprising, maybe, that in the early years of the formation of the church and the expansion of the gospel, that when the church councils were, were meeting to see what books were going to be, books of the Bible were going to be included in the official canon of the church, that the book of Revelation was the last one to get in, and it only get in by the skin of its teeth. Um, you know, the further amount of time that the church got from the original audience to who the book of Revelation was written to, the more controversy it seemed to attract to itself. And even um, uh, there were particular sects who focused on it kind of solely and almost made it like a canon within the canon. And uh, it's still true that that sadly happens today in some areas of evangelicalism, particularly in America, maybe. They treat Revelation a little bit like this. They put a lot of weight on it. They give it a privileged position that kind of um, allows their interpretation of what may be coming in the end times to, to rise above the rest of, of what um, Scripture has to say. There's been many people down through the years who have said a lot of negative things about the book of Revelation as well. Martin Luther of the, Re of the Reformation, he, he wasn't exactly a fan of the book and he, he said this, that he finds it neither apostolic nor prophetic. I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. Wow, the great Martin Luther said that. I couldn't actually believe that he's more wrong on that and we're gonna get to that in a bit. The great John Calvin, it's interesting to note, wrote a commentary on every single book of the New Testament apart from the book of Revelation. He just didn't quite know what to do with it, so he left it out. If you know who the playwright George Bernard Shaw is, he comments that the book of Revelation is the curious record of the visions of a drug addict. And it's maybe not hard to see why when you read it and get into it a wee bit. But I want to ask this morning, who, who wrote this book, first of all? We're going to do a little bit of an overview of the book of Revelation before we get into looking at the letter, as I said. So who wrote the book? Contrary to popular belief, it's called The Revelation of St. John. But scholars today actually believe that it wasn't John the Apostle who wrote this book. The majority view is that it was another John, a guy who's known as John the Seer 
or John of Patmos. Patmos was the island that he referred to in the passage we just wrote where he was most likely exiled by the Roman authorities um, for preaching the gospel. Uh, and he got in a bit of bother there and was exiled to this place called Patmos where he had this vision. John was likely a leader of the churches, like a bishop or an overseer of the churches in Western Turkey where these seven churches were located. Um, so he's kind of probably either like a bishop or a traveling prophet who moved amongst these churches. Uh, and part of the reason for the reluctance of the early church to include this book in the canon of scripture was this lack of assurance about who John actually was. Um, so what we can say about John and what a couple of commentators have said about him is pretty interesting. The great Eugene Peterson called John, this John the seer, a pastor, a poet, and a theologian who was God-intoxicated, God-possessed, and God-articulate. I kind of like that description of this John. You know, I, I'd like to be a person who's God-intoxicated, God-possessed, and God-articulate, and we as a community should be a community that is God-intoxicated, God-possessed, and God-articulate. But what is this book actually about? What is the book of Revelation about? Fundamentally, Revelation is a book about Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a book about worship, and it's a book about discipleship, and it's about the final hope of the world. It's about worship. It's shot through with heavenly songs of worship and praise. It's center on the Lamb who is on the throne. It is about uncivil worship in that it rejects and calls for resistance to civil religion and resist empire or Babylon as it's called throughout the book of Revelation in all its forms. The book puts out a call for faithfulness to Christ and a call for us as Christ followers not to compromise our faith with the world system. It calls for the people of God to come out of Babylon, which is another word for empire, as we've said, and to faithfully follow Jesus. For those early churches, Babylon was quite obviously the Roman Empire in which they found themselves with its emperor cult. But any society that the Babylon cap fits must wear it. And so the people of God across all ages really need to come out of Babylon and follow Jesus. Maybe in recent history, the most vivid expression of Babylon that we have known would be that of Nazi Germany. Here's a quote that I want to just read from the handbook of the German Christians in 1933. Just listen to this and you'll get an idea of what I mean. For the sake of the Third Reich, we stand with Hitler and those true to him in the struggle for a great, strong Germany. That's the German Christian movement. When religion and state and politics unite, this is what Babylon is. It might be easy for us to imagine a modern-day Babylon equated to something like a superpower like, like the U.S., where politics and religion are fused together in many cases. There's some kind of empire-like qualities to the U.S. today where you think about the American evangelical movement and conservative politics and how the two kind of overlap and seem to be intersecting together. And it all gets quite confusing and quite empire-like closer to home, and we might actually think about that there's a memory of empire here too, actually. The, the colonialism of the British empire was nearly inseparable from the expansion of the gospel. 
for a time. For about 100 years, Britannia ruled the waves. We, and then I here, we live within the memory of that empire. And it translates into our own context in some pretty dark ways, if we think about it. The story of the beginnings of the plantation of Ulster is one of people landing on these shores with a Bible in one hand and a sword in the other. Crazy, really, when you think about it. We might think about the slogan that you can't help but come across if you've been in Northern Ireland for some time, for God and Ulster, and any and every form of sectarian hatred or polarization of faith identity groups is kind of like an echo of this mixing of political and religious ambitions. This comes dangerously close to the markers of Babylon, as Revelation calls it. We truly live in this country within the memory and shadow of Babylon. But back to the book of Revelation, and this book is an incredible work of literature. It's like a mashup of poetry and politics infused with vivid theology. It's a stunning achievement for the early church. It invites us to imagine and then practice what might be called a dissident worship and witness, a call to break rank with the world system and to follow the lamb into the new creation. There has been much nonsense, as I said, written over the history of the church and interpreting this book. I'm probably no sillier than the century just gone past. The last latter part of the 20th century and the beginning of the 20th First century, there has been some crazy stuff written about the book of Revelation. I don't know if you've ever heard of that Left Behind series of books. Is anybody aware of these books or heard of them? Yeah, maybe a couple of people nodding. Um, barely possible fiction, apparently. Not that I've read any, but all utter nonsense, theologically. You know, The great G.K. Chesterton, he commented, those St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision. He saw no creature so wild as one of its own commentators, which is a pretty great way of saying that this book attracts nutty people and some nutty interpretations. Yeah, I was one of them for a while. But what is this book actually about? We're going to let Eugene Peterson and a guy called Michael Gorman, who's written a brilliant book on Revelation, tell us what this is this book is about in a couple of great quotes. Eugene Peterson said this, the intent of Revelation is to put us on our knees before God and worship and to set the salvific shaping work, words of God in motion in our lives. Michael Gorman said this, the purpose of the book of Revelation is to persuade its readers, both ancient and contemporary, to remain faithful to God in spite of past, present, or possible future suffering. Whatever form the suffering may take and whatever source it may have, simply for being faithful. In spite of memory, experience, or fear, Revelation tells us covenant faithfulness is possible because of Jesus and worthwhile because of the glorious future God has in store for us and for the entire created order. Suffering, as Michael Gorman says, is the inevitable consequence of remaining faithful to Jesus. But this book, the book of Revelation, gives us hope in the midst of that, hope rooted in the assurance that God will work everything out for good and that he is actively reigning now. 
This book is about worship and it is about faithfulness to Jesus. What kind of a book is it? It's a really unusual book, as I've said. In terms of genre, the book of Revelation is simultaneously three things. It is an apocalypse, a prophecy, and it's a letter. It's kind of like a mashup of these three genres of biblical literature. It's an apocalypse, first of all. What is an apocalypse? An apocalypse is a genre of Jewish literature um, that uh, the Bible only has two or three other examples of this, but a little bit of Daniel and a little bit of Mark 13. There's a bunch of others that were in circulation at the time of the early church that didn't make the cut into the canon of Scripture, but Revelation made it in. An apocalypse is a revealing of a truth about an unseen about unseen present realities, realities about God, realities about heaven, realities about the future, such as judgment and salvation. The one that we have recorded for us in the pages of Revelation is about this cosmic battle between God and the Lamb versus Satan. And it manifests itself in the earth in the struggle between God's redeemed people and the agents of Satan, represented by these horrible beasts that you see in the book of Revelation, these beasts that come from the land and the sea. The important thing to remember, though, about the book of Revelation is that it is symbolic in nature. All of it, it is all symbolic, not just some of it, it's all symbolic. The symbolism points to an actual reality, but the symbols do not portray a real world. This might be a little bit confusing. I hope it isn't confusing. I'm trying to be as concise as I can. This, this, this word for revelation, the word revelation that we have for this book is a, is a Greek translation of the word apocalypsis, which we get our English word apocalypse from. And I don't know what you think about when you think about apocalypse. You know, you might think of that movie Apocalypse Now. You know, scenes of death and destruction and the end of the world, this kind of things. But that's, that's not what apocalypse means. Apocalypse means something like unveiling. It means something like revealing, hence revelation. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the book of Revelation is a book of prophecy, as was said. And prophecy in this sense isn't exclusively about making predictions or pronouncements about the future. Rather, prophecy is speaking the words, speaking words of comfort and or challenge on behalf of God to the people of God in their concrete historic situations, says Michael Gorman again. It's a powerful tool that Richard Hayes, the New Testament theologian, says can purge and refurbish the Christian imagination. I don't know if you're like Jude and I, you're maybe surviving on a diet of Love Island these days, and I think we probably all <laughs> could do with a little bit of purging and refurbishing of our imaginations, right? Guilty as charged. I think prophecy is partly about the conversion of our imaginations to think God's thoughts after him. The book of Revelation can awaken our imagination. All prophets do that. I think. We saw that recently in this community, didn't we? There's a couple of projects that we've engaged in that our artists have led out in. So we, we had the uh, stations on the street where we had the stations of the cross out on the street and we had Stephen's Same Difference project um, that we did with some paths up the road. And uh, both of those were prophetic statements 
Both of those were designed to awaken our imaginations to see the world as God might. So why don't we let this book of Revelation act as a, as a prophetic, a piece of prophetic literature that can awaken our imaginations to see the world the way that God does. Thirdly, the book of Revelation is a letter. It's a circular letter that was sent to these churches, these seven churches in Western Turkey that we read about there in the first couple of chapters. It is a letter of resistance, a letter that is a strong critique of the system of Roman power that these churches find themselves in. But most importantly, as we've already said as well, the book of Revelation is about Jesus. It's about Jesus Christ. Throughout the book of Revelation, there are striking images of Jesus. Jesus appears as the faithful witness who remains true to God despite tribulation. Jesus is displayed as the present one who walks among the communities of his followers, speaking words of comfort and challenge through his spirit. He is the lamb who was slain and now reigns with God the creator, sharing in the devotion and worship due to God alone. And he is the coming one who will bring God's purpose to fulfillment and he will reign with God's people in the new heaven and the new earth. The vision that we just read of Jesus in the first chapter is theology in a poetic kind of mode. Another way of saying that, it is like Christology on fire. The Jesus in these pages is displayed as the Jesus who is the victorious one. The Jesus who overcomes not by violence, but as the vision unfolds in later chapters, and if we give it a careful reading, we discover that he overcomes by lamb power, not by violence. The appearance in chapter one that John had of this living, risen, and reigning Jesus overcame him, and he fell at his feet as though dead. Remember, We're talking about the same Jesus who the disciple John, who was the apostle, he laid his head on the breast of this Jesus as they reclined at the table together. This is the same Jesus who wept when his friend Lazarus died. This is that same Jesus, but he is revealed in his majesty, hence the revelation of Jesus Christ. And yet he says to John, do not fear This is the command that weaves its way throughout the story of God. Over 300 times we hear this command, do not fear. We rightly emphasize in this community that that Jesus is the face of God. He is the exact representation of the Father. God has a face, we say, and it looks like Jesus. And this is true. We have a king in Jesus who was truly human, and suffered and was tempted in every way as we are, but it's not like this one-dimensional face. He's not just only human and no more. If we look into these flaming eyes of fire of the Jesus who is depicted in John's vision, we see another dimension of Jesus, a Jesus who is powerful, a Jesus who is ruling his churches and who moves among them, a Jesus who is the first, who is the last and the living one, who holds the keys of death and Hades. If we could only grasp that, we would see that there really is no need to fear. It's a vision of security. It's a vision 
as if Jesus is saying in this vision, I've got this, John. Relax a little. I've got this. The message of Jesus also brings hope, hope to those who remain faithful, to share in his victory and his reign. It's also about discipleship. It's about obedience. Obedience to Jesus is called for in these letters to the churches. These three elements come together through each of the letters to the churches. Security in the victory of Jesus, an assured hope for the future, and obedience through faithful discipleship and witness. That's the intro to the book. We're going to move on from the intro to the book now, and we're going to jump into this letter to Ephesus for the remaining part of the morning. So this letter to the church in Ephesus is is striking in what it can say to us today. Ephesus was a city that was about a quarter of a million people in size, which is pretty much the size of, you know, the inner part of Belfast is about a quarter of a million. I think there's about 350,000 in the metropolitan area of Belfast or something. It was in Western Turkey, as we said already, and uh, the city of Ephesus was a huge bustling city that had temples, it had amphitheater, it had shops, it had houses, it had a gladiator's graveyard. Just sounds like the, you know, this crazy ancient city. One of the great wonders of the ancient world, the seven wonders of the ancient world, uh, was at the heart of this city of Ephesus. That's the temple of Artemis, the Greek name of the goddess Diana. Um, in Ephesus, this temple was so large that any of the other temples to Rome and the emperor cult um, that were built were constructed within its grounds. And there, there's a little image, a reconstruction of what that temple looked like. This thing was stunning. It formed the centerpiece of this city of Ephesus. When we think about the, the city of Ephesus today, it's pretty crazy to think that there is no active church in modern Ephesus or the surrounding towns and villages at all. It's stunning to think in like the fifth century AD that there was one of the great councils of the churches that met there. This church at one time was a huge Christian center. And it's even more stunning when we think about what the warning of Jesus was to this church in Ephesus in this letter that we've just read. We can only imagine that somewhere along the life of this church that they left their first love and Jesus removed the lampstand. Sobering to think. Each of these letters that we look at begins with one of these facets of this image of Jesus in the first chapter. They continue by congratulating the church on what's been going well and then a warning about what's been going badly. They each end with a solemn warning and a promise It's the spirit that is speaking to the churches through these letters, calling on the faithful Christians to conquer, to overcome, and promising some aspect of future glory that is theirs in Christ. One one amazing thing I found amazing anyway in my nerdy way about this city of Ephesus and this temple of Artemis was right at the center of this temple of Artemis, if you could flick back to it, there was this garden, this huge garden that surrounded it that the other temples were in. Right at the center of this garden, the focal piece was a particular tree. And this tree was a sacred shrine for the people, for the Ephesian people. And they also treated it as a place of asylum. This tree was a place where if you were a criminal, if you came within a certain distance of this tree, that you were free from capture and free from punishment. 
So it's pretty amazing to contrast that with the promise that to he who overcomes, I will give to eat of the fruit in the garden. And if we skip forward to Revelation 22, we can read this about the, the tree in the center of the garden in the New Jerusalem. It says this, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And this brings us to one of the main points about this book of Revelation. It is a direct confrontation to the civic religion of the day and the power structures that upheld it. In the day of John the Seer, this was expressed through the Roman Empire and through the emperor cults and the numerous mystery cults. But what about this church in Ephesus? What does Jesus have to say about it? Jesus, when he looks at this church, this Ephesian church, he's much to commend them for. They bring him delight because they've worked hard. They've been patient under threat and persecution. They've drawn a clear line between those who are really following Jesus and those who aren't. They're praised for having like this non-accommodating stance. They call out those who are posing as false apostles and who were perhaps taking advantage of the hospitality of the early Christian church, and they're introducing perhaps different teaching to those of the real apostles. And they're taking a stand against this group called the Nicolaitans. We don't really know who this group called the Nicolaitans were, but probably their teaching or their practice was out of whack and leading the church astray. We can learn from this though we we should as a community be rightly on the lookout for any individuals or or groups that might be promoting new practices or teachings and we should be look out on the lookout ourselves just to ensure that we don't enter into as a church a spirit of compromise with the spirit of the world in these days we can easily get sucked into like the fad of the new can't we you know whatever is in vogue at the time I think newer, fresher expressions of church like this are perhaps particularly vulnerable to that. And I think this is pretty sage advice. So whether you're thinking about the latest kind of self-help tool or self-awareness stuff, maybe it's novel ideas and practices, maybe they should just at least give us pause for consideration to see if there's compromise anywhere in that. There's also good in a lot of that as well. We might say that this Ephesian church had proper straight-edge doctrine and practice. All their beliefs lined up with the apostolic teaching, and they were able to take a stand against their error and compromise. Their orthodoxy was bang on, we might say. Then Jesus brings a challenge to them. Jesus' challenge to them is abandoning their first love. He calls them back to their first love. He does this by exhorting them to do the works they used to do. But what, what is this first love? How, how can this church have all the right beliefs? How can they stand up for all the right causes, exercise the right kind of discipline, and then they miss this? They're at threat of having their lampstand removed. What is, what is this first love that Jesus is talking about? 
couple of passages of scripture I want to read as we consider this. First one is Mark 12, 28 to 31. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them, seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And then First John 4, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So we see here in these scriptures that loving God is important, but so is loving our neighbor and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus, in this letter to the church in Ephesus, is calling this church to do the works they did at first. Love looks like an action. It's a doing word in the New Testament. But it's not a love that is void of heart. It's not void of, of passion for Jesus. I think, I think this abandoning of first love by this early church was both a letting the flame of love for God in the heart die out and a growing tired of doing works of love to those around them. I think this first love is a both and thing here, that one feeds and informs the other. We might even say that intimacy with Jesus leads to action, as we've said over the years in this place, that intimacy leads to action. We lean in to the heart of Jesus so that we can be changed and then we can go out and love. We love because he first loved us. I want to invite the band up and we're going to finish in a bit, but I want to lead us in some thoughts around this first love. Why, why don't you stand? Change posture. Just tinkle a wee bit. Thanks. So the main point of Revelation 2 to 3, as one commentator put it, was that when it's, when it's heard faithfully today, we're to listen to the Spirit of God and see what the Spirit of God might be identifying in our own churches as our own particular unholy spirit. And what the Spirit of God is offering us in return is the presence and grace of Christ to transform us into a more faithful people of God. Each week, as we study these seven letters in the churches of Revelation, we're just gonna let these letters do their work. We're gonna let the Spirit of God speak through them and act like a measuring rod to test us as a community. We're gonna listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And we're gonna be invited each week to respond to that. I think the heart of Jesus and what he's saying to this church and us today is that he remembers our first love. He remembers the time, if there was one, when your heart was captivated with him. 
He remembers when you found your satisfaction in him, when you found your delight in him. He remembers when your heart was gripped for the first time. I wanna ask you this morning, have you ever been in love? Do you remember your first love? There is an intoxication that comes with that. There is a love sickness when you're not around the person that you love and only being in their presence will quell that. I think this is part of what first love means. If you read the book of the Song of Solomon, I urge you all to read the book of the Song of Solomon. You'll get what I mean. What I mean. If you translate what the book of Solomon's book of Song of Solomon says to the relationship between Christ and His bride, the Church, and us as individuals, you may be able to stir up this love, this first love within yourself. Do we understand this dimension of relationship with Jesus, Redeemer? Have you? I want you to ask yourselves, being intoxicated by his love? Have you been gripped by his presence? And are you lovesick for anything else? You see, Jesus remembers your first love and he longs for your heart to return to him. G. Campbell Morgan said this, no amount of service done in the king's service will make up for the neglect of the king. He also said, all zeal for the master that is not the outcome of the love relationship with him is worthless. The great A.W. Tozer said, when the eye of the soul looking out meets the eye of God, looking in, their heaven has begun upon the earth. Do you experience heaven on earth through this exchange with him? If we don't experience this first love, we may not overcome, as Jesus puts it. If we miss him, we're gonna miss the heart of the issue. You see, the goal, the goal of God is Jesus. It's the enjoyment of his person. There's nothing wrong with enjoying God. In fact, it's what you were built to do. He is the bridegroom that we will one day be wed to. This is a love relationship folks <laughs> he calls us to remember from where you have fallen from to repent and to do the works we did at first we can actually literally just say sorry Jesus we come to you and we ask that you would forgive us for abandoning our first love we come to you and ask that you send your spirit to kindle the flame of love in our hearts again. 
Spirit of God, come. Help us to love our King, our Bridegroom, the lover of our souls. As we do so, would you cause us to love others as you first loved us? Let love erupt in our hearts and overflow into this community and touch the lives and the places and spaces that we inhabit. Here, this table is the love feast that has been laid out for you. As I was praying after I finished writing this talk, I just felt prompted to look up what the word love means in the context of Jesus telling us to remember this first love. And um, Strong's Greek um, told me that it's not just affection that it means, but it means a love feast. It means a love feast. So these early churches participated in the Lord's table. It's great being married to an RE teacher who can tell you these things. And they call that the agape feast. This word love is agape. And it means the love feast. It means the love feast. So come and feast. Feast on him. We are invited to feast on Jesus. Feast on his broken body and his blood poured out. He longs for your gaze and your heart to return to him, Redeemer. So this is an invitation to repent <laughs> if we are lacking in our first love for Christ and to come to him and feast on him and enjoy him. It's okay to enjoy God. Northern Irish people need to remember that. <laughs> it's okay to be intoxicated on the presence of God. It's okay. <laughs> it's good. So come, let's sing, and let's break bread together. I'd like to invite uh, the prayer ministry team, if there's anybody here, and some senior leaders. And if anybody would like to pray this through, we would love to pray with you. I'd also love to pray there's a few of us who are feeling stirred that God really wants to move in healing in these days. So we would love to pray for you. If you have healing from a headache to cancer, please come and uh, we'd love to pray with you and see what God does because he's good. <laughs> so let's sing.